Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We've looked at Jesus' identity as Messiah, his relationship to God throughout his ministry, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Repeatedly, we've asked the question, if Jesus is not the one God overall, then how should we interpret him? Today, we delve into his exaltation and priestly ministry in heaven. We'll explore a little bit about what it means to be at God's right hand before spending a good deal of time working through Colossians 1, 15-20. Lastly, we'll cover how Jesus' humanity uniquely equips him to sympathize with us in his role as our high priest. Here now is episode 420, part 10 of our One God class, Christ's Exaltation and Priestly Service. Number 10, Christ's Exaltation and Priestly Service. So we looked at his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now we want to look at his ascension. And then what is he doing up there? Part one is going to be looking at his exaltation. Part two, I want to spend some considerable amount of time looking at one text, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Really where I want to kind of camp out. I want to show you some stuff there that I think is pretty cool. And then last of all, we'll look at his, just a little bit, at his priestly ministry in heaven. So many of these things, there's a lot more that can be said. I'm just approaching everything from the angle of this one God overall. And uh, so we're just taking thin slices here. But uh, when it comes to the subject of Christ's exaltation, his ascension, the key verse by far is Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, or Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's our verse right there. It's got everything. That's ascension right there. God says to his son, he says, sit at my right hand. That's ascension. This is his priestly ministry, that word until. That until has been going for a while. He was told 2,000 years ago, sit at my right hand until, until what? Until he comes back, until I make your enemies your footstool. So this gives us a good short outline, thumbnail sketch of Christ's heavenly ministry and his plan to return. And the key phrase here is, you know, where it says, sit at my right hand, that, that phrase, right hand. What does that mean, at his right hand? I think when we picture it, we picture, I don't know, a big chair that God sits in. And then on his right side, there's another chair, and that's where Jesus is sitting. I don't think that's terrible to picture it that way. Just you got to recognize that it's probably a little more complicated than that. I don't know. I've never been to heaven. so. But at the same time, it's, it's good for us to recognize, as Wayne Grudem says, that to sit at the Lord's right hand is not a position of equal authority. Wayne Grudem says, to sit at the Lord's right hand is not a position of equal authority, but it is a position of authority second only to the Lord. 
not in the place of ultimate authority, for he is still at the Father's right hand and still subject to the authority of the Father. And so even in his exaltation, we're going to look at his exaltation, and it's awesome. I mean, it is just epic how exalted our Lord Jesus Christ is. But even as exalted as he is, he's still at the Father's right hand. He's still second. I had a professor that used to say, Jesus is the highest exalted person in all the universe next to God. And I was like, well, that's about right. You know, you put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis, but then you also recognize the limits that the Bible puts on it as being next to God. I, I wish some of our Christian praise music that you hear uh, would be as restrained as my uh, professor. Sometimes they, uh, they cross the line there. It says in Acts 2.33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, who's that He? That's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but He Himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here we have Peter full of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he's saying to the people there that this, well, what they heard was the speaking in tongues, but this, this Spirit that has been poured out is an indication that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God and that he has now been made Lord and Christ. That's exaltation. Jesus was always Christ since God anointed him with the Spirit at least. Maybe I would even argue from birth he was Christ because God sent the angel to Mary and said, because of the, uh, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and because of that he will be called the Son of God. Uh, the son of the Most High, and he will have the throne of his father, David. I think right from birth, he is already Messiah. But he gets anointed by the Spirit, you know, at his baptism. But Lord, Lord is a big word. It's, a, it's an interesting word because the word Lord has a range of meanings. Lord can refer to God himself. Adonai in Hebrew is the word Lord, and it, it refers to God himself. Um, Lord can also just mean some person that you're trying to show respect to. It can be like, sir. So it can be anywhere from God to, sir, can I please have an apple from your tree? (laughs) Anywhere in that range. So where is Christ in that range? I mean, certainly above sir. And his exalted status, we're going to see exactly how high God has put Jesus. We see this same concept of sitting at God's right hand in two other places, Acts 5.31 says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he's Lord and Christ, leader and savior. 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So Christ is exalted to a point that he's actually above Angels, authorities, and powers. Peter David gives the following explanation of this. He says, The idea that the affairs of this world are controlled by various spiritual forces 
has a background in Jewish literature and is common in Paul. This is a key idea. The affairs of this world are controlled by various spiritual forces. I don't know how many people believe this today. I don't. But this is just obvious to ancient people, especially in, the, in Bible times. You have a really tantalizing little conversation in Daniel chapter 10, where the angel apologizes for being late and says, the prince of Tyre or the prince of Persia or whatever it was, it was Persia, I was like wrestling with him or fighting him or doing something with him. And uh, Michael, your prince, has come to help me out so I can come give you this message. And I, now i got to go back and deal with it. And you're just like, <sighs> so how is a human prince like standing in your way, mighty Gabriel? There is a pretty clear indication that there are spiritual powers, but then there are human powers. And that there is a linkage between the two that is not obvious in our world today. We are a democracy. Not really. I mean, we're a republic. But let's, let's just say we're a democracy. We believe in the United States of America that we choose the president. That's what we believe. We believe that we choose the senator. We believe that we choose the mayor. That's the whole idea of democracy. Well, from a biblical point of view, they didn't have democracy. Usually. I mean, I guess the Greeks were probably already doing it. But they looked at it as... Like there are spiritual forces and then there are human powers and forces and authorities and there is some sort of connection between the two. And, and they're not all necessarily bad either. It's not like every, everything is evil. And so I, I appreciate Peter David explaining that, or Peter David's. Uh, he goes on, he says, Either these powers or Satan as the arch power is seen as the force behind evil, idolatry, and persecution. And thus, the power behind the suffering of the Christians to whom Peter is writing. In ascending, Jesus goes through the air or the heavens. Jews variously conceived of seven or three heavens and place these powers at various levels in those heavens triumphantly and sits by God the Father enthroned over them. Let me read that last part again. In ascending, Jesus goes through the air or the heavens triumphantly and sits by God the Father enthroned over them. Okay? So, I'm not really too worried about what ancient Jews thought about different layers of heaven. But because uh, it's not in the Bible anyhow, this is other Jewish literature that's interesting to speculate, but that's not really what I'm into right now. But I am into this idea of sitting at God's right hand as being over the other authorities. So Christ is exalted so high that there are, you know, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Or uh, I think I have this verse where it talks about uh, authorities and powers and, and so on that are in heavenly places. So it talks about the air, talks about heavenly places. And then wherever God is, he's above all that. And where's Christ? He's at God's right hand. So there is this exaltation above these other spiritual powers that I think is really cool to think about and really worth recovering for us as Christians today, this, this understanding. Ephesians 1 is probably the best place to look at this. Ephesians 1.19 says, His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. There it is again, huh? Look at that. In the heavenly places. Okay. Where is Christ in relation to all the other authorities and powers? He's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all. Rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, 
but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's exaltation theology right there. That's ascension theology. Jesus is exalted above all of these other powers, but he's still at God's right hand. Uh, Frank Thielman writes, When Paul tells his readers that God has given Christ victory over all authorities that would compete against him, therefore it is likely that he includes in his thinking the close alliance, this is the part I was talking about before, the close alliance between local deities and the deified members of the imperial family, whether living or dead. What in the world is that talking about? Well, in the first century, when Ephesians was written, who was in charge of the world? The Roman emperor, right? The Roman emperor and his family and the predecessors of that emperor were voted in to become gods by the Senate. They were deified. They were declared to be gods, not on the highest level, but like, you know, on a low-level god, lowercase g, god. If indeed there is this connection between spiritual powers and earthly powers, then what is this saying about Jesus in reference to Caesar? Because whatever, I mean, Caesar's the top, so he's easy to, to focus on. But like, whatever heavenly authority is behind Caesar, Jesus is above that. Oh, wow. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. Jesus is not just in competition with Caesar. Jesus is above the person that's endorsing Caesar or the power that's endorsing Caesar on high. When he says, he goes on, that God put all things under Christ's feet, readers who had seen depictions of Rome trampling its conquered peoples underfoot would take heart that the ultimate victory belongs to Christ. And, uh, of course, not all... Heavenly authorities are good. For Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers. There's all these words again, right? Rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So God has obedient authorities and powers and disobedient authorities and powers in heavenly places. Uh, so it's, it's mixed. And I don't know what the mix is, but I know that Christ is above them. And I think that's awesome. <laughs> this is Christ's exaltation. Now, he's not yet ruling over our world until God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Right? There's still that until, but he is already exalted and he is already ruling over his own domain, which is the church. We say he is the head and the church is the body. Think of the relationship of your head to your body. Your head tells your body what to do. Your body doesn't argue back to the head and say, oh, I don't want to move around. The hand doesn't, you know, like, the hand just does what the head tells it. Well, it's supposed to, at least. Do what you unless you uh, are having some medical problems, I guess. But uh, that's the relationship where he offers, and Jesus Christ offers protection from malevolent forces because he has superior authority to them, including demons. That's a whole other subject. All right, let's look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This conversation about spiritual powers and exaltation, I think, nicely sets us up to address this really powerful poetic section of Scripture in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And uh, we'll probably spend about 10 minutes here and just really 
work on these verses that make up this, uh, it's not quite a poem, but it is, it is poetic, as I think you'll see with some repetition and some you know, nice stylistic uh, qualities to it. So verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hmm. There's a lot here. Let's start with this phrase, that he is the firstborn of all creation. That could mean a couple different things. Creation could refer to the original Genesis creation, or it could refer to new creation. If we're talking about Genesis creation, then Christ is the first born before in time all creation, in which case God would have had to beget Christ or make Christ, however you want to say that, and then through Christ bring about all of creation. The other option is to say that this is actually talking about new creation starting from the moment God raised Jesus from the dead. That would be the first born moment of new creation and then expanding out from there to include all those who believe. So for me, verse 18 settles it. It's just pretty easy. It's right in the same section. In verse 15, it calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. In verse 18, it says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's like the same terminology, it's just in one case it says creation, and in another case it says from the dead, clearly referring to his resurrection. Now it's possible that these two could mean different things, but I think it's more likely that they mean the same thing in light of some other reasons I'm going to explain in just a second here. So we're talking about the new order that God brought about in Christ through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. Uh, Let's look at verse 16 again. Now it says, for by him all things were created. This word by in the Greek is the word in. It can be translated by, I'm I'm not mad at the translator, but it more often means in. So this is a case where a translator had to decide. Now, what's the difference? If we say, well, by him all things were created, we're saying that Jesus created everything. If we're saying that in him all things were created, someone else did the creating in Christ. It's very different, right? That's a pretty, it's just a little word. Look at that, just a little tiny word. And yet it has this huge difference of meaning. G.K. Beale, who uh, wrote a nice commentary for uh, the B-E-C-N-T, the Baker's uh, commentary set, he said, most of the uses of N, which is the Greek word, epsilon ni, N, pronounced the same as the English in, right? Uh, most of the uses of in with Christ as the object of the preposition in Colossians clearly refer to the idea of sphere. So you have a sphere 
and that, let's call this sphere Christ, and you put something inside of it, that's now in Christ. Right? It's a theological concept. It's not referring to instrumentality. Instrumentality is if it's translated as by. Now, again, the Greek word can be translated either way, and it is all over the place. The question is, what is Colossians chapter 1 trying to say here? Or what is the apostle saying uh, who wrote this? If we could find other verses where we have creation and in Christ together, and it even said new creation, that would just really help, wouldn't it? Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Ding, 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 ding. Look at that. In Christ, new creation. I mean, there it is. <laughs> and guess what? It's the same person. Which means, you know, I'm not saying that Paul always says everything the same way. And, you know, God's working with him as he inspires him to write these things. But people tend to have the same phrases that they say. Lord knows people who listen to me preach year after year. They hear the same phrases from time to time, right? It makes sense that in other epistles, he would also have the same concept of new creation and the concept of in Christ. Let me read it again. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is or she a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is how they talk about salvation. They talk about salvation as creation. That's powerful. Ephesians 2.10, maybe even better. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Christ. What do you mean created in? He's talking about salvation. But the language the vocabulary to talk about salvation is nothing short of creation again. It's that big. And what is Ephesians 2 all about? Ephesians 2 starts by talking about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, how we walk by nature according to you know, the prince of the power of the air. These other authorities exercised power over us. We, we were by nature children of wrath. That's how Ephesians 2 begins. And then in the salvific moment, it says... We are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's look at another one, Ephesians 4.24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is the part of Ephesians where he's talking about practical Christian living. And what, what, what he's saying here is that when it comes to practical Christian living... You should think about it as a whole new human being, a new humanity or a new self. The old translation said a new man, right? It's a new anthropos, a new Adam, a new human being. You are a new human being. You have to put it on. It's created in the likeness of God. It's like Adam language, right? Image of God and so on, or Eve language. Uh, let's look at Colossians 3, verse 9. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have to put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The new self is the new creation. In Christ... If you're in Christ, if you're in the sphere of Christ, guess what? There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, 
In Galatians, he says male or female. Here he says barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Those old divisive boundaries are melted away when you are in Christ. It's a new creation. So my argument then is that when it talks about this word creation here, it's talking about new creation in Christ. And when it says that in him we were created, it's talking about new creation in Christ. Let's talk about all things. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So you see, you have all things and then all things. When it comes to the word creation, katesis is the word creation in Greek. The first definition is an act of creation. The second definition is the result of a creative act. But the third definition in the Greek dictionary, the BDAG, says a system of established authority that is the result of some founding action governance system, authority system. Corresponding to one, katesis, the word creation, is also the act by which an authoritative or governmental body is created. So what I'm telling you, this phrase, all things, can either refer to rocks and trees and birds and bees and rivers and seas. Look at that. I just made up a poem. It could be referring to all the physical stuff in the world, or it could be referring to authority. That's one of the, de- this is a dictionary. This is the def- dictionary definition of the word creation, is that the word creation can mean governments or government system. And then the Little Scott and Jones dictionary has the definition authority created or ordained, that the word creation could just mean authority. And we see this pretty clearly in 1 Peter 2.13, where it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and it goes on from there. This word institution here, which is obviously talking about governments, is just the word creation, katesis. It's just creation, but it's translated as government here because the context makes it clear. Let's look back here. All things is qualified by three phrases. Let me start at verse 16 here. For in him all things were created. And we're working on this all things. What is all things here? That's, what, that's my question. That's what I'm working on. Well, we get three explanatory phrases. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. These three phrases give uh, more description of what all things refers to. All things does not necessarily refer to everything that there could possibly be. I mean, it could, but it's qualified or limited by these other phrases that we find here. Now, check this out. Here's the bread of the sandwich. The beginning of verse 16, look at verse 16. It's just a marvel. It's just magnificent. Just ponder it for a moment. It has the, the first part, for in him all things were created. Then it has the last, last part, all things were created through him and for him. You see how those go together? They go together so nicely. It's a parallel structure. They're both saying the same thing. In him all things were created, and then here all things were created through him and for him. Not exactly the same thing, but very parallel statements. And then inside the sandwich, what do we find? A definition for what all things refers to. What is all things referring to? It's talking about 
everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's what it's talking about. Now, it's important for us to point out here that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Here it does not say, for in him all things were created, heaven and earth. It does not say that, does it? It says, in heaven and earth. We're not talking about the creation of the heaven and the earth. We're talking about something created in heaven and earth, something that is both visible and invisible. And then we get this clear explanation of what we're talking about. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Scott McKnight explains it this way. He says, I read them as earthly systemic manifestations or perhaps fallen angelic powers. Hence, the systemic, worldly, socio-political manifestations of cosmic, angelic rebellion against God. It seems thrones and powers are heavenly, invisible potentates, while rulers and authorities are more likely their earthly, visible servants. So what he's saying here is that the first two there, which is thrones and dominions, that that is actually referring to the invisible, heavenly. And that the second part, the rulers and authorities, refers to the earthly and visible. You see how that works? We're talking about the creation of all things. We start with that, we end with it. And then in the middle, we describe what things we're talking about. Not heaven and earth, but things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Thrones or dominions, which would be the heavenly, and then rulers or authorities, which would be the earthly, or vice versa. I don't think we have to make a big deal about that. But the point is, this is that same exaltation language that we saw in Ephesians 1. And we saw in these other places where Christ is now above these other things, and they're using the the vocabulary of creation to describe it. But wait, there's more. We also have all things in verse 20. So we had all things in verse 16 twice, then we have it in verse 20, and it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. See, we have that same language again. On earth and in heaven. Through him to reconcile all things. Is is all things in verse 20 referring to all of creation? No. It's referring to what of creation is reconcilable. People that are responding to the gospel. People that are responding to Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about rocks. Okay, we're not talking about the hydrologic cycle. We're talking about reconcilable people. All right, so let's look through it again, just to summarize. When looked at this way, everything hangs together nicely. Verse 16 refers to the new created order of visible and invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Verse 17 says Jesus has priority over all these and keeps everything in order within new creation, within the church, within his body. Verse 18 says he is the head of the church, a newly created order. Verse 18 also says he is the firstborn from the dead, both in time and preeminence. Once again, Ephesians 1 uses the same vocabulary. Look at all this similar language, right? All rule and authority and power and dominion. And then All things, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. There's all things again. To the church, 
Not all things of creation, but all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I believe that Colossians 1 is about how God created a new order in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, who is the firstborn. Christ is the firstborn of the new creation, the first one raised from the dead, the pioneer, the leader, the sustainer of the new creation as his, his realm, his domain, where God has given him his authority. And that through him, God is reconciling all things to himself, which is like you, me, other people. This is what things we're talking about. We're talking about people, actually. And so once you understand this new creation idea, verses like Revelation 22, 12, and 13 are not that difficult because you have a framework to think about them. Revelation 22, verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I think this is talking about Jesus. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, I want to ask the question, beginning of what? End of what? What are we talking about? Because we know that God, other places in Revelation say that God is the Alpha and the Omega. And so then here Christ is saying, well, I am the Alpha and the Omega. QED, Jesus just must be God. Well, come on. Let's think about it a little bit. There could be shared titles or it could be an Alpha and Omega in a different but similar sense. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. God is the beginning of the old creation, like father, like son. You know, it fits, right? He is the alpha of the new creation. He got it started, and he's going to see it through to its end, which is forever, the omega as well. He's going to be there. All right, let's talk about Christ's heavenly role as priest just very briefly, and then we'll conclude for tonight. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest. Mm, but don't you believe that even bigger now? We have a great high priest. He's not a shabby high priest. He's not a weak sauce high priest. I love that phrase, weak sauce. He is a great high priest. He has passed through the heavens, right, to the right hand of God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't be weak sauce yourself. You've got to hold fast your confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest I love this part, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is a key understanding of Christ's current heavenly work. The words high priest, that's the key to understanding what is Christ doing today. We know what he's going to do in the future. He's going to come back and he's going to rule as God's emissary, God's Messiah, God's king. But the question is, what is he doing now? Well, he's serving a mediating role as the high priest. And uh, I just love this. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, why is Christ, this exalted at the right hand of God above all these authorities and powers, whether on earth or in heaven, whether in the past, the present, the future, the age to come, why, why would he be able to sympathize with me or with you? Well, he has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's precisely his humanity that makes him great. It's the fact that he has felt every temptation to its fullest. You have not felt every temptation to its fullest. 
There have been some times, I'm willing to bet, in your life that you have been tempted to do something and you were resisting and you were resisting and then you gave in. So you didn't feel its full force. Christ felt every temptation to its full force and never gave in. Wow. But if he's God, he can't sin. It's the doctrine of impeccability, if you want to know. The doctrine of impeccability teaches that because Christ is God, he cannot sin, but he was tempted. Come on. Come on. How can you be tempted if you know you can't sin? Let me try it on you. I dare you to run 50 miles an hour. You know you can't do it, so guess what? It's not a temptation. I would like to tempt you to levitate three feet off the ground. I challenge you to make a ring from the core of the sun. Just take some, take some matter from the core of the sun and make it into a ring and wear it. I challenge you to do that. You know you can't do it. It's a dumb temptation, right? So it would be with Jesus if Satan comes to him and says, why don't, if you're really the son of God, why don't you turn that stone into bread? And Jesus says to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God, you know, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and Satan turns to him and says, do, we ha- do I have to, I mean, you're never going to fall for this. This is stupid, Jesus. Come on, you're God. I know you're God. This is, this is dumb. And Jesus says to him, shut up, read your lines. Satan says, I guess we'll try this temple thing. Um, If you uh, are really the son of God, throw yourself off the temple because, and then he quotes the scripture, the angels will catch you so you don't dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, oh, you shall not put the Lord to the test, right? The Lord your God to the test, right? And, uh, And Satan says, this is so dumb. Can I please go home? You're never going to fall for a temptation. You're God Almighty. You wrote the script. This is stupid. And Jesus says to him, you finish the script. And Satan says, you know what? I bet if I gave you all the kingdoms of the world, you still wouldn't fall down and worship me. The whole thing's a joke. The whole thing's a charade. It's meaningless. Look, if you're LeBron James and you're, and you're playing basketball against a, a group of fifth graders and you win, big deal. You win with regular size NBA players. Of course you're going to win with fifth graders. It doesn't mean anything. But what did Jesus do? Jesus was the fifth grader. And he went against LeBron James, but he listened to the coach. He he listened, he depended on the coach, and he did what the coach said. And because he obeyed the coach, he beat LeBron James. Now that is incredible. A fifth grader beating an NBA basketball star? That'll get my attention. And I might even say to myself, well, I'm a fifth grader too. Maybe I have a shot. Because then we have an example, someone who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And I believe that is, that is the difference if you have a one God overall perspective on who the Father is, and then you recognize Jesus in his place as a human exalted to the right hand of God, but who still serves in a sympathetic way as our high priest. That can relate to us 
and can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way as we are, in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Let's review. Number one, God exalted Jesus to his right hand above other heavenly authorities and powers. Number two, to be at someone's right hand is not a position of equal authority. Number three, Colossians 1.15-20 poetically describes how God initiated a new created order in, through, and for Christ, who is the firstborn, the beginning, and the head of all things in new creation. Number four, as the Almighty is the Alpha and Omega of all creation, Christ is the Alpha and Omega of the new creation. And number five, in his priestly service, Christ sympathizes with us because he was tempted in every respect as we are and could have sinned, but didn't. That's the greatness of Jesus. It's not that he didn't sin. It's that he could have sinned and he didn't. That's the greatness of Jesus. Next time, we'll focus on the Holy Spirit. We haven't really discussed the Holy Spirit much, and that's an important subject for us to consider in this class. One God overall. So I hope you join me next time as we continue through this class together. Well, this concludes this episode. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and leave your comment on episode 420, Christ's Exaltation and Priestly Service. We'd love to hear your thoughts about it there. Also, in light of a new year coming up very soon, I did want to get your thoughts on what your recommendations would be for topics and guests for 2022. So I think probably the most effective way for me to get that information is to just have a Facebook survey in the Restitutio group. If you don't use Facebook and you'd like to share your thoughts on what you'd like to hear in 2022, go ahead and email me, sean at restitutio.org, and this way I can hear your thoughts as well. But uh, for those of you who are on Facebook, uh, stay tuned for the survey. would love to see what, it, what you're thinking about, what your questions are. I do have a couple of ideas, and this One God class is scheduled to go for another four weeks, so that'll bring us right into January. But I'm also looking for ideas and guests and series uh, to work on. So uh, please share your thoughts. Love to hear from you. Uh, thanks to all who are supporting Restitutio. It really makes a difference. You can do that at restitutio.org if you'd like to donate. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.